Well, that sound means it's time for a live stream in Sunday School. Good morning. <laughs> uh, good morning. Uh, thank you for joining us today uh, for a live stream Sunday School for Akron Alliance Fellowship Church in Akron, Ohio, or for anyone else who wants to join us in the morning uh, for Sunday School. Thank you for being here this morning. My name is Melvin Gaines, and we're going to go ahead and get started with some music to allow people to jump on with us. Uh, people such as Roscoe, good morning. Thanks for being here. Uh, Arlen and Angie, good morning. Uh, here comes uh, Marvin Winans, who's going to tell them. And uh, let's listen together while others jump on with us. Who's Thanks for being here. Amen. Okay. Jesus loves him. Who's going to tell him? Who's going to tell them by Marvin Winans? Good morning. Hi, Ronnie. Good morning. Who's gonna warn him? Thanks for joining us. Other things coming on him. So God can turn. Jackie, good morning. Happy Sunday morning. Cloudy Sunday morning. <laughs> Slightly cooler Sunday morning. Laura, God bless you. Good morning. Hmm. Good morning, everyone. Good morning from Marnell and Nate. Good morning. Arella, good morning. Who's going to tell them by Marvin Winans? Amen. Hmm? I said, I said, good morning, Roscoe. He was first. Amen. Okay. Clarinda, good morning. Yes, Jackie, we'll take care of you in a little bit. We're going to have a little prayer time. Sure can. A lot's going on because we are in the end times. A lot of people are being prepared for Jesus' return. Keep getting that message over and over again. Cindy Phillips, good morning. Are we at the first day of spring? Yes, uh, March 20th. We are, huh? Okay. Yep. Bev Parkman, good morning. Matthew 28. Who's going to tell them? Great Commission. Amen. 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 Thank you for being here this morning. God bless you. Nate and Marnell, hope you guys are hanging in there. Hang a in there. Amen. 
Amen. Amen. Jesus loves even those people who we would personally despise. We need to have the hearts and minds to love everyone, regardless of where they're coming from or what they're doing. We need to have the mindset of what Christ would have us to have. And pray for those people. Amen. Marvin Wine. We've used this one before. He, um, it's actually through Times Square Church. That's why. Amen. That works, Arlen. Marvin Winans, who's going to tell them? That was from the Times Square Church, and that was able to evade any issues because we're using, we're pulling back from stuff we've used before, which is the way to go. If we know it worked before, we'll try it again and do it again this way. But music-wise, Marvin Winans, great talent, very, very uh, wonderful song. Who's going to tell them? We need to be the ones to not stop talking about Jesus, which was the theme of last week, uh, last week's message. We want to keep doing that, keep speaking about him. And for those individuals who are truly confused and truly need help, uh, we need to pray for them. That's what we need to do because Satan wants to prevent people like them from not coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Joanna and Charles, good morning. I, I, I'm thankful that we're, we're all gathered together here online to uh, get together and just hear the Lord speak because that's really what this is all about. Let's um, make a note of the announcements for right now. And uh, Jasper, hey, good morning. Amen. Um, first of all, remember your tithes and offerings. We want to, oh, we want to pray. Uh, we want to pray, and we'll, let's pray right now for the specific individuals that were referenced. We'll pray again to lead into the Sunday school, but let's do that first before we get into the other announcements. So let's pray for Ronnie. We're going to pray for Jackie. Uh, Lord, we just pray right now and, and stop for the moment and lift up to you both Ronnie uh, and Jackie. Um, Ronnie for just to feel better and feel a little bit better. And Jackie, just because a lot of things are going on and we're just lifting her up before you, Lord, give them a covering and give them comfort and grace and peace as they move about their day. And as they continue to listen to you, as you, they speak to you, Lord, you speak to them and give them what they need to be able to function and be able to give you the glory and the praise in anything that they do. And we just give you praise and thanks in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Got that, so I didn't want to forget. And please remember your tithes and offerings. We want to make sure that you're keeping that in mind as well, too. Um, for the business of the church and uh, taking care of those things. If you are going to church today in Akron, you're welcome to drop them off in the drop box in the lobby. If you are mailing your tithes and offerings... Please do so. Akron Alliance Fellowship, 688 Diagonal Road, Akron, Ohio, 44320. That's the address. So please keep that in mind. And, and amen. We just want to keep always uh, having a mindset of prayer because that's the way we communicate with the Lord, and that's what we want to continue to do. Um, today's message will be uh, provided by Pastor Gus. 
And the name of the message is God and Education. It is a great message. It will be available online uh, here on the Akron Alliance Fellowship timeline immediately following Sunday School. Um, for those of you in Akron, you'll be able to see his live version, which might be slightly different than what he has recorded. So uh, you're not missing anything. Either way, you're going to get the essence of the message. Or listen to both. Um, or listen to both if you're able to come to Akron, right, and, and, and listen to the uh, – we have recordings and podcasts. So uh, whatever way you want to catch it, that's fine. Um, um, and Jackie, yeah, hang in there at work. I hear you. Got to do what you got to do. Um, so let's keep that in mind. Please, uh, we want to make sure we have a complete church experience, and we appreciate you guys uh, understanding as we try to put this together and do so the best way we can. And hopefully we'll have bigger and better things in the future to give to you, including um, live church services overcoming that dreaded, uh, poor, acoustical-type situation. Uh, but we'll figure it out. We're going to figure it out and see what we can do with that. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and get into today's lesson. And the lesson is really a continuation of last week because we kind of had to end early um, just because of the time frame. We didn't want to take too much time. Uh, but we will continue now and get back into this survey of biblical, biblical inerrancy. Um, this is our seventh session. And this is a continuation of about a deeper dive into biblical inerrancy, kind of a, a, a deeper take. And there will be some rehashing here that we'll be getting into as time permits today. So we'll see where we are with that. So with that in mind, we're going to go ahead and get started with a, with a word of prayer and just continuing to remember the individuals we prayed for just now, but also for our church family. And we just uh, appreciate all of you. And for those of you who are online with us who are not part of our church. As far as we're concerned, you're part of our church family uh, because you just uh, keep, uh, you're so, uh, you just stay with it. You know what I mean? We, we just want to make sure that you understand that, you know that. Um, even if we've never met, it doesn't matter. Uh, you are still part of our family. We appreciate you very much. Uh, with that in mind, you know, we, we, we just pray for you and we care for you very much. Let's go ahead and pray and let's go ahead and get started so we can get into hearing what the word has to say uh, in this particular study. Father, we just thank you and give you all praise for your very presence this morning. Lord, we just want to quiet our hearts and listen to you speak, not the words that I use, but your words. We just want to make sure that that's always what is conveyed uh, here in these studies and whether it's uh, sermons or messages or whatever it is about our church, that we're giving uh, lessons or messages that your word alone is what's conveyed. We thank you, Lord, that you've allowed us to be messengers, and that's what, it, and we take great honor in such a thing. But we want to make sure that we're very true as to what you want us to say when it comes to your word. Bless us now, Lord, as we get into the study about the Bible and get into it a little bit deeper and look at uh, what your word has to say and how it indeed should challenge us to dig even deeper into the word as we look at this particular study. And we give you thanks and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, everybody, we're going to get back into the study of biblical inerrancy. And we kind of left off in the area where we were looking at defending inerrancy because we're going to look at some passages that, and we'll look at them a little bit up close too, just to make sure that we are 
uh, aware of what's being said because we don't want to rush too quickly. We, that's, that was the problem with last week. We couldn't really rush through this um, and because we would leave something out, I felt, when we were communicating. So, um, first of all, we were, we're going to get back into looking at inerrancy and... There are critics that, of course, always want to point out that there are contradictions in the Bible. There are some statements in scriptures that are not literally or scientific, scientifically true. Um, but we need to make sure that we are not putting something in, this, in the place where these scriptures are that is not there or not making any assumptions. You know, one thing that we need to understand, too, this is very, very true when you look at the lives of other individuals and when we... We, we often make snap judgments based upon things that we see or things that we hear. But the thing I always want to caution people about, too, is that sometimes you have to understand something. Sometimes we get information from other people and we make an assumption that that information is true about that person that's being referred to. And I, I just want to challenge everyone that it's very, very similar here in biblical inerrancy, the study of it. We shouldn't assume anything. We should be the ones doing the digging. We should be the ones doing the reading and studying and not just believing someone because they choose to not believe and say, oh, well, then it's because so-and-so says that that must be true. And it's the same manner where you just don't believe something because I tell you. You're the one that has to be the Acts 17:11 person to get into the Word and see that what is being said is true. So let's look at some passages and let's take a look at it and let's do some... Uh, put some thought behind it and some reasoning. So, first of all, understand that the contradictions that we see that may be apparent on the surface are not necessarily real contradictions. We talked about this very briefly last week, so forgive me for those of us who are for those of you who know what I'm referring to. But we're going to be looking at uh, specific passages to also take some time with it. First of all. Um, some writers do not give all the truth about a certain event, but they do give only the truth. And, and, and you'll see that in the Gospels, very common. That's a very common occurrence where some things are discussed uh, at greater length in some passages than, than others are. Um, parallel accounts may give different details, but they're not contradictory. They are merely complementary. Complementary. More than one person is looking at something and giving something that's maybe even providing additional information for us. Turn to Matthew 28. Turn your Bibles and electronic devices to Matthew 28. This is why I wanted to take some time to look at this with greater detail. Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to uh, look at this passage, and we're going to also flip over and look at another passage afterward that's going to show something that's pretty important. Now, I spent, I rushed through this last time, and I apologize for that, but I'm going to take the time with it now because we need to look at it a little bit more detail. Matthew 28 Starting at verse 1, we're going to read through verses 1 through 7, and let's take a look at it and see what it says. Now, after the Sabbath, this is the English Standard Version. Follow along in your own version, please. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. 
Now, that's Matthew's, that's the account in Matthew of when Jesus uh, was, had risen from the dead. Now, understand something here, too, and it just occurred to me as I read this. Remember, Matthew was not there at the tomb. He was given this information to write and record. He was not there. He was not an eyewitness of any of this. So this was inspired. This was the, that God-breathed word that Matthew recorded. Okay, so remember, but the, the key word here to look at is that there was an, an angel of the Lord, in verse 2, descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So this is the account. The true eyewitnesses were who? The women who were there, who saw this, and of course the, the guards that were there as well too, the ones who were supposedly there to guard the tomb. Now turn over, please, to Mark, or pardon me, Luke chapter 24, not Mark, Luke 24, Verse, uh, let's, gonna, let's look at verse 1. We're going to go verses 1 through 5, or for 1 through 6. I would catch before, before my bride puts the number down. 1 through 6, 24 verses 1 through, <laughs> Luke 24 verses 1 through 6. Now look at this. Again, Luke is also not a witness at the tomb. He is given this word. This God-inspired word, but look what it says. But on the first day of this of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Two men. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how God, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. And then it goes on from there. So now two men were mentioned here in this particular passage in Luke chapter 24. And of course, we have to make the conclusion based upon logic, because that's all we have. Two men were at the tomb. Even though Matthew referred to one, an angel of the Lord who had descended and there was this great earthquake, and there's no mention of an earthquake here, by the way. But Luke is just giving us information. Luke is, you can tell Luke's writing is a lot different than the other Gospels because of how Luke records information and how he gives specificity, honestly, to uh, some things that are just not mentioned in other particular passages. But that doesn't mean that they're incorrect or in error or in contradiction. They're complementary. That's what I wanted you to understand. So the conclusion was that we have to go by what Luke's account is. Of how many angels were at the tomb? There were two. There were two that were there. Just because there was a mention of only one didn't mean that there were two. There weren't two there. So that's what we need to understand uh, about this account as we read it in two different Gospels. They complement each other. There's information about an earthquake in one. There's no, inf there's no information about an earthquake in the other one. Uh, there's there's no information about the soldiers in one, and then there's an account about the soldiers who are guarding the tomb in the other one. Complementary. Very, very important for us to see that and understand that. And remember that Matthew and Luke were given this information to record about the event uh, because they were not witnesses themselves. And so that's something that's also important for us to see, too. Only God can control and, and, and have this type of situation where these two accounts don't contradict each other, but they complement each other. So when we look at 
arguments about defending inerrancy, we have to look at it from the standpoint of the truth is being spoken at all times, which is what we always want to go back to and always want to remember. Let's take a look at another example of that. Go to Matthew 27, 37. Matthew chapter 27, verse 37. And this is something that we look uh, at here in two different passages. And it's going to be a comparative to another passage in the book of John. And you have to look at these. This is We're going to look at the inscription that's over that's put up on the cross over uh, where Christ is, what, what, what is being said about him. Verse 37 of Matthew 27. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Okay? So that's what's quoted. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now turn over to John 19.19. Same account. John 19.19. And this is Pilate. John's writing down a Pilate. Also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Okay? And so now... We, we recognize that the second one, the account here that John gives, gives a little bit more complete description of what the, either, either one of these passages is stating. But these were both part of the, the inscription. They were both there. The only difference here is that the words of Nazareth was being used uh, in the John account. But it doesn't make it necessarily an error. It's not an error. It's basically stating the same fact. Jesus, the King of the Jews. And that's what we need to recognize here when we see something like this and look at the passage. It is important for us to understand that it's not a contradiction. Uh, it's just another way of stating the same thing. And we need, want to make sure of that, that we're, we're getting this together here. Now, we cannot deny, and we will not deny, we will not uh, disregard the fact that there were copying errors made. Uh, good morning, Marquetta. I wanted to mention uh, good morning to you. There were copying errors that took place, no question about it. But those things don't discredit inerrancy. When, you know, the, the only thing we have to understand is just because someone makes a copying error uh, doesn't mean that the original that it's being copied off of was also uh, had errors. We have to come back and look at this logically, and, and we can, we'll be doing that a little bit more as we get further into the study about this copying thing and all that. Um, let's face it. There are textbooks out there. There are, there are documents. There are all kinds of things where we have seen copying errors. People just will, will just take things and, and, and misplace words or leave words out, honestly, that, that shouldn't be left out. And that is a really important thing for us to understand because we're all human beings and copying errors did take place. And we can't always solve every issue that comes up when it comes to the contradiction or the apparent contradiction in Scripture. We have to do some more research and look at it. Um, we, we referenced, um, go to Second Samuel 24. 2 Samuel 24. I feel a lot better about covering these passages the way that we're doing it today because uh, last time I felt a little bit rushed. It's just one of those things, but you just do what you, do, you can here. 2 Samuel 24, verse 24. 2 Samuel 24, verse 24. My lovely bride looks at me. It's like, Stop apologizing. where are you going with this? 
Second Samuel twenty four twenty four. Okay, this was when um, uh, David had sinned, and now there was this great uh, plague that was had been taking place, and we are now at the place where he is, uh, where Aruna. He's said to Aruna, who I guess owned the land and the threshing floor, where David eventually settled. Um, to he wanted to buy, he wanted to make sacrifices to the Lord there to stop the the plague from continuing. So it says in Second Samuel twenty four twenty four. But the king said to Aruna, "No, I will buy. I but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing." So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. Okay, so that's what he paid for the threshing floor. Now. Turn over, please, to First Chronicles twenty one twenty five. First Chronicles twenty one twenty five. And you have to understand the Chronicles go through more of a summarization of a lot of the activity that takes place um, when it does, gives a recording of the different kings and the different uh, events that took place because it's a chronicle. It's it, it's it speaks for itself as to how it's written and what it represents. But look what it says in First Chronicles 25, and this is a refer, for referring to the King David saying to Ormon, which Ornan, which is another thing. It's a different name. It's the same person. Aruna and Ornan are the same people. So David paid, verse 25, Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. Now, a couple of things to note here. 600 shekels, different amount than 50, right? For the site, for the site, which implies that he bought the surrounding property, the land around it as well, too, because that property was now going to be dedicated to the Lord, that, that whole situation. So he wanted to make sure that uh, Ornan, or Aruna in this case, was compensated for it. And so notice that there are two different names being used. We're going to run into the same situation again in Second Samuel and First Samuel uh, about different names. But here we see that perhaps the, fresh, the threshing floor was 50 shekels. But the surrounding property, the total was 600. So we just have more information here. It doesn't mean that there was an incorrect statement about any of them. It just means that there was just a more complete summary of how much David eventually parted with uh, monetarily to buy the land. The shekels, the 50 shekels was specifically for the threshing floor. Okay, here's another example. Go to 2 Samuel 21, 19. 2 Samuel 2119 and I I challenge everyone who's uh, within the sound of my voice to make sure that you do your own homework like I said before this is really important we don't ever want to make assumptions about anything there's plenty of information out there about passages like this that you can do a research on and look up and take into account but we have to understand that when it comes to recording and information, um, here's the example I want to give about David. Um, it says, Second Samuel 21:19, And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jari Orgim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Now, it says Elhanan killed Goliath. Now, just about every account we've read, right, uh, refers to David. Go to 1 Samuel 17.50. 1 Samuel 
But we just saw the example given uh, about the threshing floor example for the two different names of the people that were referenced in the different passages. And here we're going to have the same situation again here. 1 Samuel 17.50 says, So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And I'll just go ahead and read verse 51 because that actually adds to the other passage. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. So this was David that did all of this. David, you know, obviously killed, well, knocked down the Philistine with the sling and the stone and killed him outright with the uh, the sword that was drawn from the Philistine. So maybe David had two names, just like Solomon had two names. Um, and we would see, we also read that in Solomon in 2 Samuel 12, verses 24 and 25. Or maybe Elhanan killed Goliath's brother, the brother of, maybe omitted by a copyist. But we don't really know all those details. We can only go by what we're reading here. We're, we're making assumptions here, which is not always good. But we need to come back and look at certain things here that are very important for us to understand. Um, we recognize that not everybody in the Bible, by the way, had just one name. Uh, we... We need to understand that, too. The Bible often would refer to people by their first name. Uh, we wouldn't have any references to last names or additional names. And the reality is is that uh, not everybody in the Bible had just one name. There were people who had different names uh, that referred to them. Remember, you know, Paul, uh, Cephas, um, these are all Peter. Peter, Peter Cephas, these, Paul Saul was Paul. These are all different names that different people had for different reasons. Um, and we remember too, of course, um, Abram and Abraham, that was a name that was given to him by God, just like Sarai and Sarah. Um, and, and so these are things we have to keep in mind here too. So, and understand something, uh, there, there's, when we look at how the Philistine died, how Goliath died, um, there were different ways. We have this as an issue today when, you know, when we look at death certificates, for example, and we may very well know that a person who uh, wound up dying, uh, it was the result of a stroke, but uh, the death certificate may say something totally different. It may say something like respiratory failure or something like that. It really, it really comes down to whatever the doctor comes to a conclusion with when they actually give the report for the official death certificate. So different things happen within the course of an event that are still truthful. They don't contradict each other. And so we want to make sure that we keep that in mind as we look at these passages. And we understand, knowing that there were errors in copying, but it's very clear here about the names that are being used and what's being referenced here. So if you have questions about that, I'll welcome them. I, I think it's worth looking into it a little bit further. But the one conclusion I want to, and, and, and understand that these are facts that we don't know for sure. We don't have complete understanding of it we have to trust that these things that are being told to us it's god's breathed word that these things are indeed true but we make the assumption at the end of the day that the bible is innocent of error until proven guilty uh, okay just like anybody who goes to trial remember what i said about not jumping to conclusions or jumping the gun when we're looking at individuals or looking at the lives of people that we always want to make sure that when someone goes to trial it is really important for us to not uh, pr prove them guilty 
uh, before the trial starts. Did you know, uh, and I didn't know this, uh, did some research on the old Sam Shepard trial. Uh, Dorothy Kilgallen was one of the reporters who actually talked about the Sam Shepard trial. Most fam- one of the most famous trials ever in Cleveland uh, because of the doctor who lived in Lakewood, um, Sam Shepard. And the judge, before the first trial, before the first uh, piece had gone on, Dorothy Kilgallen had overheard and heard this judge say, that Sam Shepard is guilty as, guilty as hell. That's what he said. This was before the trial. Well, you see how that can be a real problem when it comes to having a fair trial. The judge already thinks that you're guilty before the trial starts. Um, you've got a real problem. And, of course, at the, in that first trial, Sam Shepard was indeed convicted, and Dorothy Kelgallen cri- criticized um, this whole situation and essentially made it known that that judge had basically uh, was, was partial uh, to the entire proceeding. And eventually, you have to go through the whole history of that, but eventually Sam Shepard was granted a new trial because this information came out, and then he was found innocent uh, of the crime. This was way after the fact. This was way after all of this had taken place. And in fact, this is all taking place after Dorothy Kilgallen was uh, found dead one morning because of uh, a situation. So it's a, it's a very, very deep story. It really is. But, but this is the thing I want to make sure that you understand here, just tying it back to what we're talking about here. The Bible is innocent of error until proven guilty. Sam Shepard was innocent until proven guilty. He should have been innocent the entire time. But if you make a decision that based upon the fact that someone is already guilty or something is already guilty, well, there's no sense in having a conversation with that person about it. They haven't looked into it. They haven't done the research. They haven't made the conclusion. They're doing it based upon either a lack of faith or just saying that the Bible is not worth paying attention to. You have to understand that some disqualifications that take place are not valid disqualifications. Um, That's what we have to look at here. So the Bible is innocent of error until proven guilty based upon the Bible's self-claim of inerrancy and the mass evidence for inerrancy. We can assume there are good explanations for what are apparent contradictions, but the burden of proof is on the critic. If a person wants to disprove the Bible, let them go and do the digging and the research. We don't just believe what somebody says because they tell it to us. It's up to us to have information, be forearmed, um, have the information available, and look at these plausible explanations uh, for so-called discrepancies, okay? Plausible explanations. And that's really important for us to see. Inerrancy allows for other forms of uh, truth in human language besides technically literal truth. So let's look at that a little bit more detail. There is going to be statements that are going to be corroborating each other. For example, in Acts chapter 7, verse 6, take a look at that. Let's flip, let's go to the passage itself. Acts chapter 7, verse 6. Uh, Let's see, Stephen. Let's look at what it says here in Acts chapter 7, verse 6. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. Um, Now, Stephen may be approximating when he says the Egyptians' captivity was 400 years. And if we go to Exodus, Exodus 12, turn to Exodus 12. Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. And it says in Exodus 12, 40, 
The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And, of course, the next verse refers to how they all went out from the land of Egypt. All of the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt on that very day uh, at the end of the 430 years. So, okay, Stephen's saying 400 years. It's, uh, Exodus 12, 40 says it's 430 years. Legitimate approximations do not violate inerrancy. Uh, if I actually say my ancestors came to America 100 years ago, in context, it is a legitimately true statement whether it was actually 110, 101, or 110 years. I mean, it, that's what we need to understand here, too. If someone were to point to this and say, well, the Bible's in error, uh, that's a foolish comparison. Um, approximations, if you're rounding off uh, from 430 to 400, no one's going to get upset about that or should be getting upset about that. It's a rounding of numbers. We do this all the time. We do this in our regular dialogue, and so we have to keep that in mind. Here's another one. Um, figures of speech. Figures of speech. This is another important uh, uh, note here. Go to John chapter 10, verse 7. John chapter 10, verse 7. A figure of speech is, is something that is used very often in all kinds of communication. Um, and here's a perfect example of that in John 10, verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, we know that Christ is not literally a door. Amen? I mean, he's not a door. We know that. We understand that. We've had this. But what does a door do? It allows for what? Entrance. It's an entryway. It's a way to go in to a place. You have to go through a door to get inside of a building. You have to go through a door to get outside of a building. Uh, it's, that's the typical way of getting in, inside, in and out of a building, right? Not climbing through windows. You go through doors, okay? So the point is, is that uh, he is the entrance in eternal life. But scriptural truth involves many figures of speech, many different symbols. All such truth is still literal and even and that even figures of speech convey literal truth. It's a literal truth. We call Jesus as the door. He is indeed the doorway for eternal life, for us to experience eternal life. And so we recognize this figure of speech makes perfect sense for our greater understanding. And remember something. Jesus came out and, and flat out said he spoke in parables uh, to do what? To confound those who lacked in faith. Confound those who just always doubted, didn't want to understand, already made a decision um, like the judge in the Sam Shepherd trial, so-and-so is guilty, no sense in even bothering, uh, no sense in even taking care of that. This is what we need to understand here. Uh, we, he put those, uh, he gave the, them that language because there would be some who would stumble, but those who really believed and really had faith would understand exactly what Jesus was saying. Language of appearances is another thing to look at here. When the Bible says the sun set, it is merely using a language of appearances as we do, to convey the literal truth of the day ended. Now, we know that according to how our solar system is set up, the sun does not rise and set. But our perspective gives us that when we see the sun come up over the horizon in the morning and the sun set below the horizon in the evening. All we're doing is just showing, seeing the actual natural rotation of the earth and the sun taking place at the same time. And that's how we experience sunrise and sunset. And... <laughs> Uh, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna, not gonna plug my wife's book, but that was exactly what Stella, the sun, come up right. It was about the sun rising, and you don't want the sun to set. 
<laughs> and but but she realized that the sun had to set because her friend across the world would have to see a sunrise and a sunset. So, but that's that's exactly what I mean about how you you can tell a story based upon the language of appearances. That that's that's exactly what this is. And also popular but not scientific truth. Um, go to Matthew thirteen thirty two. I think we're. Yeah, we're getting on the home stretch here. Matthew 13, 32. The smallest of seeds. Matthew 13, 32. Talking about a mustard seed. And this is something that I learned, um, but this is uh, it, it's also very important for us. That's why we do the research. That's why you look things up. Matthew 13, 32. It is the smallest of seeds. This is the mustard seed. This is a grain of mustard seed. Um Smallest of seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So it's popular truth. Jesus referred to the mustard seed as the smallest of seeds. Botanists today know of many seeds that are smaller than that, which I didn't know. Uh, I'm not a botanist, uh, but if I study botany, I'm sure that there are different seeds that are out there that are very much, very, very small. But Jesus simply used the proverbial understanding of the mustard seed, which was considered the smallest of the seeds as popularly known in Palestine. This does not violate inerrancy. And that's what we have to see here, everybody. Some of this is just common sense. Uh, I really get, it really gets down to it, too. We have to understand that anybody who wants to nitpick about it, the burden of proof is on them to prove that the Bible is inerrant. The Bible is not telling truth. The Bible is not speaking about truth. Um, is in error. Is in error. Excuse me. I, you know what? I'm using. I'm mixing words together. I apologize for that. The Bible is in error. The Bible is not uh, true. That is something that they have to prove and show to us. And that's always the danger of taking this. I, I, I'm thinking quickly and not speaking. And I want to make sure I'm very clear. So, I get a hat tip to my assistant here, my my bride, to make sure that I'm saying the right thing. The Bible is. The people have to prove that the Bible is an error. They have to sit down and come up with good reasons for it. And, but it doesn't mean that their reasons are valid. It doesn't mean that their reasons stand or hold water. Um, does the center hold? That's an old expression in philosophy. Um, the, the things that we talk about. The detractor. Pardon me? The burden of proof is with the detractor. The burden of proof is in the detractor. Is with the detractor. The burden of proof is with the detractor. I can I can speak. Um, so let's keep that in mind as we look at this particular study. Now we're going to get into this a little bit deeper and, and have some thought about it because we we can't, if, if I'm the, the skeptic, right, and if I'm going to play the role of skeptic, the copying thing is a big deal because we need to make sure that we address that for what it really is. Uh, and that the beauty of all of this is that we have the Bible as a document that stands on its own that even though there have been copying errors, they have not been egregious errors. They have not been errors that have been in any way contradictory to what God was saying. I think the Living Bible was criticized when it first came out because they felt that it went a little bit too far as far as stretching the meaning of what God was proclaiming. And so there have been corrections since then, even to the Living Bible. Um, the New Living Translation, in case you didn't know, is kind of a... Uh, a, a Bible translation that was born out of making sure that the living Bible was corrected in some way, shape, or form. Uh, but it has a dynamic equivalence to it, and that's what makes the New Living Translation 
a highly readable Bible. That's what the whole purpose of the Living Bible was, too. They wanted a readable Bible. I get it. I understand that. But that's why we have errors that are fixed. That's why we have the corrections that are made. That's why we have more than one version of even a Bible translation that come out when things are fixed. The Holman Christian Standard Bible is an excellent version, for example. Um, but the Christian Standard Bible is a correction or, or additional, additional corrections or enhancements of the original Holman version. If you remember the old Holman version, Holman version used the word Yahweh. They wanted to give a literal, literal name of God all throughout uh, the entire Bible. And the new version, the Christian Standard Bible, which you, you see, Tony Evans, I think, has a study Bible, a Christian Standard Bible. That word Yahweh has been pulled out and, and pulled back from a little bit because of the, the nature of just making sure that they're conveying what God is saying, what God is speaking, without getting too caught up in the proper name aspect of it. But that's that thing about names, isn't it? The names are important. We, they, they do have relevance, but we want to make sure that we are not losing something in the translation because we're getting kind of hung up on one area when we shouldn't get hung up. Um, doesn't, it doesn't in any way diminish the Holman Christian Standard Bible because I have both versions. I love both of them. But it's good for us to keep in mind and understand that we want to make sure that at the end of the day, God's word is being conveyed. God's truth is being conveyed. What's being said is indeed the word of God. And we can look at certain specific passages, but one thing that's never been contradicted or never been discussed beyond that, uh, beyond these little things that we've talked about here today, is that the plan of salvation, the way Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, these are all truths, these are all things that are discussed. That's nothing to argue about. That is a truth. That is something that God has done to show us. And indeed, these things that we look at, um, we want to make sure that we're very careful that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think I may have said that before. When we see little copying errors, we see little issues that come up, which we will be covering, by the way. Uh, we want to make sure that we are understanding that God's word is true. It is being conveyed. There is no reason to get all upset about different name uses in the Bible if it's the same person. That's something we have to keep in mind here. So uh, we are not violating inerrancy in doing so. And I'm going to trust that we recognize that as we move forward. So in closing, pray after you read, meditate on the word, look at what the word says, allow the Lord to speak to you because it is the God-breathed word that is being conveyed to you. That is God communicating with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Always keep that in mind as we look at these studies. And we, and we, I do challenge you to go ahead and do the comparisons between different versions of the Bible. That creates greater opportunities for understanding when you do that. When you look at, for example, the King James Version and look at the English Standard Version or the New Living Translation, you'll see some things that will come, come through in those different languages. That It's still the English language with different translations that will be very helpful for you is in understanding Scripture. That's what really is the most important thing here, that you get a greater understanding for what God's Word is saying. Be the Berean. Be the one who studies and looks at what Scripture says. Don't take my word for it. Don't take anybody else's word for it. You get in the word and study it yourself. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that you've allowed us to spend a little bit more time in uh, the topic of uh, doing a deeper dive of the biblical inerrancy question, looking at passages specifically, Lord, to see what you're saying to us. And Lord, we recognize that 
the contradiction is only on the surface, but in that, in fact, it is indeed still truth that is being conveyed as far as what is happening. We have to understand that, Lord, your word is true. We really believe your word. We want to continue to believe your word, and we don't want to listen to distract distractions or detractors come up with reasons why your word is not true. Lord, they have to account for their actions and behavior. And I wouldn't want to be those individuals if they lack in faith. I pray, Lord, that you always help us to strengthen our faith as we read your word. And if we see something that seems different or seems to be a challenge, Lord, we don't want to run away from it. We want to go directly to you and seek after you with additional knowledge and wisdom. And, Lord, we thank you for the different resources you give to us to be able to do that very thing. Lord, we thank you for your teaching. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your loving kindness and your presence. Bless us, O Lord, as we move forward and we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining me today. We're going to sign off now and allow for you to, for those of you staying online, stay online for Pastor Gus's message, God in Education. It is uh, immediately following here on the timeline for the Akron Alliance Fellowship Facebook page. For those of you going to church, I'll see you in a little bit in Akron. For now, take care of yourselves. God bless you all. And we'll see you next time.